our kind of mantra around growth or whatnot is we always wanted to be a brand that could cross the, the chasm from being a brand to being a business, right? So it's not about necessarily about how quickly can we raise the next round of funding or how quickly can we get to a hundred million dollar valuation, five hundred million dollar valuation, but how can we resonate with the most consumers humanly possible? And how can we do that in the most cost efficient manner? Welcome to the Driving Force Podcast, everyone. I'm your host, Chase Rosa, a former private equity analyst, turned performance coach to founder CEOs, and avid Brazilian jiu-jitsu and obstacle course race athlete. This podcast will feature conversations with uniquely driven and authentic individuals across sports, business, and wellness who continue to achieve great things in their respective fields. By presenting their stories, uncensored and uncut, I hope to inspire you to take a step back, look within, and evaluate your path and journey. Today's guest is Matt Mullinax. Matt is the founder and CEO of Huron, a company that makes premium men's personal care products without the premium price. Growing up, Matt was the kid with bad skin. He tried everything in order to clear up his skin and eventually found that the more premium products worked best. However, he couldn't justify spending that kind of money on personal care products. That's when the spark hit, to create a brand that offered products that would work just as well as super premium brands but offered, a, but offered at approachable price points. Today, Huron's products include a body wash, face wash, eye stick, and face lotion. Prior to founding Huron, Matt got his MBA at Stanford and spent several years grinding it out in the finance world in investment banking and private equity. He also spent time at Bonobos in the early days where he got to witness firsthand what it meant to build a brand around a customer. In this interview, we get into Matt's football background, how he dealt with his skin growing up, his time in the finance world, and all things Huron and skincare. And so, without further ado, my interview with Matt Mullinax. Awesome. Well, thanks again for coming on the show. I really sure. appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So let's start at the beginning here. Uh, where did you grow up? I'm originally from Cincinnati, Ohio. So the kind of southwest corner of Cincinnati. Okay. And you're really into sports growing up. Um, was football your favorite sport? It's kind of whatever season it was. I mean, I grew up playing a ton of sports. I played soccer. It was kind of my first sport. I played baseball for a number of years. I started running in track when I was in sixth grade. Uh, played basketball year round. So I was kind of a junkie for whatever season it was. But I was always kind of itching to get to that next season, you know, at the, at the same time. Yeah. Okay. But football ended up being the sport that you continued into college, right? Yep. Yep. So I, uh, you know, ended up having the opportunity to go to Brown, which was amazing and, and play football there. So that was, uh, yeah, that was kind of like a dream come true. Mm -hmm. What position did you play? In college, I played defensive back, but that was kind of, uh, that was, uh, an anomaly of sorts because I literally never played defense in my life until I got to college. So, okay. <laughs> um, I mean, maybe not my life is, is kind of an exaggeration, but since like middle school. So I basically had to learn how to like tackle people again, which was, uh, <laughs> a little bit of a curveball, but it ended up ended up working out. And, you know, like I said, really, really enjoyed my four years uh, in Providence. That's awesome. So how did how did that, I guess, come about to switch from offense to defense? Yeah, I mean, while in college, it certainly wasn't my choice. Um, <laughs> you know, we we had a really strong class that came in. All I think we had eight or nine wide receivers, of which I was one, and. 
they literally kind of told me the second day in camp, they're like, Hey, we're going to move you to defense. And I was like, excuse me. Uh, <laughs> and you know, it, it was a, certainly a little bit of an, an acclimation period. Uh, but like I said, it, you know, ended up, you know, getting able to, to see the field a little bit earlier in my career, which was great. Um, and then, yeah. And then ended up just really, uh, really kind of embracing the change, but you know, it was, uh, it was fine. It was fine. Yeah. Yeah. All good. So what are the, some of the biggest life lessons that you learned from playing football in high school and college? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think, um, and, and this learning certainly carries over into kind of what we're doing now. And I think really any angle of entrepreneurship, which is you actually have to sweat kind of over the small things, you know, kind of, we go through life kind of not really worrying about the small things, you know, let's just tackle the bigger picture items, but it's actually kind of you know, the notion of the devils and the details is a, is a perfect example. You know, we used to say in high school, our coaches say this religiously was take care of the little things and the big things will take care of themselves, right? Like there are certain big fish or big topics that are totally out of your control. Um, you know, we, we can't determine what the social pandemic is like or when it's going to end. Right. But what we right. can do is determine how we're, talking to prospective customers, right? You know, those things are more in our control. So it's really about, you know, honing in on some of those finer points that are actually in our realm of control that we can actually affect. And how do you kind of not only approach that, but have that right mentality to kind of understand that, yes, this is the end goal, but there's seemingly a thousand little steps to get there. Mm -hmm. So it's about kind of taking those you know, taking those steps and making that journey and, and hopefully, you know, getting to that point eventually. Right. And any specific instances that you can remember throughout, I guess, your work experience where like, I don't know, like, oh, this is kind of similar to kind of football in a way. Does that make sense? For, from like that kind of mantra yeah, of yeah, yeah. tackling the little things? Yeah, I think so. I mean, Shortly after graduation from undergrad, I worked in investment banking and, you know, I was probably the worst investment banking analyst to ever grace the surf. Okay. Uh, and it took me forever to like grasp the small things, right? But it was kind of, um, you know, that echo in my head of like, you got to kind of figure this out because I will never be able to like do those types of things unless I can figure this out. Right. So, right. I mean, that's one terrible example. Um, no, that makes sense. Even, but even like with what we're doing at Huron, you know, I think it's such a collaborative environment. It's very lean. We only have three folks on our corporate team. So, you know, we depend a lot on partners. Some folks would call them vendors. I like to call them partners. I don't really believe in vendors. I think that has like a transactional connotation to it. I don't really like that. Uh, but for us, it's like, you know, how do we give these folks all the resources that they need to tackle those little things, right? And when we regroup, we talk about the small stuff and we sweat the small stuff. And I think that's, I think that's probably a better, uh, a better way of how that kind of concept has manifested itself in kind of my professional career. Um, it certainly has with, within my experience at Huron. Right, right. Yeah, that makes sense. So shifting gears here a little, talk to me about how playing all these sports growing up uh, took a beating on your skin. Yeah, I mean, I was, I felt like I was just one big ball of sweat from the time I was like six years old until I was like 17, because we were constantly running from 
football practice to track practice or from a basketball game to a baseball game and back to a basketball game. Um, I mean, I would just remember vividly, like just like literally wearing the same pair of socks from like eight in the morning until 10 at night until games ended and practices ended. And (laughs) you know, I think for me, it was just like, I, I would say more so like, yes, there was a, a physical effect of kind of the sweat and oil and whatnot. There's also like the maturation process, right? You're just kind of growing up and there's a lot of changes your body goes through, obviously. But I think for me, honestly, and, and this kind of uh, impacted me a little bit later, kind of in my 20s, was just kind of weighs on you mentally too, right? Because sure, through every other standard, like you're a healthy person, you are very active, you eat healthy, you try and get rest, you drink a ton of water, but your skin doesn't necessarily reflect that. And I think that disconnect for me was always a little was always very stressful, but it was just troubling in the sense of like, I, I felt like I didn't have any control over that, right? It's like, I don't understand what more I could be doing to achieve a better outcome. Um, and that was something that, that always kind of sat in the back of my head, which was, this is like not a fun process to go through. And I think kind of being out on the other side and having been exposed to so many different products and so many different brands and product formulation ethos and clean versus vegan and all natural and organic and you know all these things you just kind of take a step back and say like wow like there's so many consumers in this country who like are still walking down aisles of a cvs and walgreens who will never explore this stuff right so i I think like that was always kind of part of the basic infrastructure of huron which is can we produce products that will be efficacious in result and like leave these guys by and large feeling better day in and day out not kind of wandering through the day being like, is anyone like looking at my face right now? Like that'd be kind of embarrassing. Um, but more of like, cool, you're leaving the apartment. You feel like you have a little extra pep in your step today. Right? Sure. Um, right. And it's that little kind of channeling of that little self-confidence or an esteem boost that, you know, that I think um, is cool about what we're doing. Right. And so was clearing your skin something you were relentlessly pursuing in high school or was that not a I guess, huge focus for you until kind of those early mid twenties. Yeah. I mean, it was definitely something that I did. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I guess when you're 14, you kind of don't know what you don't know. Right. So okay, sure. I, I was like a Kroger aisle shopper with my mom. Be like, Oh, oxy pads. Cool. Let's try that. Or like clear. So let's try that. You know, I was always kind of like, you know, what else can be done kind of improve right. the appearance. Um, it was until later that I kind of went to like more, dermatologist office and kind of went a little bit more the professional route but um yeah there really wasn't any shortage of effort or product tried that's for sure mm-hmm. um so it, it was kind of one big learning journey to be to be totally honest yeah and so kind of throughout that journey what were some of the products that you noticed work well for your skin specifically i mean i think for me kind of the biggest epiphany happened um i guess twofold one if you go the more kind of tried true dermatologist route, there are powerful drugs that will clean up your skin, but there are certainly effects to those drugs. Like for instance, Accutane is one that's kind of popular um, for pretty severe acne. I actually took Accutane twice, which is like very rare, but it basically kills all the bacteria in your skin. So good bacteria and bad bacteria. So you're left with uh, like very red and flaky skin. Your lips are incredibly chapped all the time. Um, and you just have kind of this distinct look of when you're on Accutane such that, you know, if someone were to walk into 
a room tomorrow, like in a group of 50 people, you could immediately point out who's the one person that's on Accutane. Like it's that distinct of a look. So again, like, is it efficacious? Yes. But is it a fun process to go through? Absolutely no. Um, I think for me from kind of a, you know, over the counter perspective or, or just kind of going into a store and buying products, what I found to work best with my skin is just products that were kind of premium and in ingredient quality, right? You're, you're using better inputs that will oftentimes yield a better output, right? It's just like, right. you know, are you going to feel better, um, better equipped to tackle like a really busy afternoon if you have a number three from McDonald's or like a salad, right? Like probably the latter, right? That's kind of like the energy and what your body right. needs to perform at a high level. Um, so that's just like one comparable. But yeah, I mean, I started to play around with a few more premium brands, if you will, and I found kind of better results from using some of those products. But if you, if you distill down those learnings, it's kind of better input, better output. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. And I remember, I remember reading somewhere, is it true that you were once asked at work about what was going on with your skin? <laughs> oh, yeah. That's good for the old self-esteem, right? Um, yeah, and this was kind of like in my mid to late 20s. So it wasn't like I was 22. Um, not to say that that would be an appropriate question at age 22. But you know, when right. you're 26, 27, it's, it's not that uh, comfortable to field either. So, you know, that was kind of like a kind of roll your eyes, like, I get it. I know, like, it's not like I'm not trying. I don't really want to look like this necessarily. Um, but I think, you know, in the back of my mind, you know, that was kind of like a, okay, like there's, you know, what else is out there? What can be done such that I can kind of feel like I'm in better control of, um, you know, my skin in general. Yeah. And so what was your response or reaction to, to that? I mean, I think I just kind of brushed it off. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's, I mean, what more can you really do in a professional setting, I guess, but mm -hmm. it didn't really sit well with me. Uh, if I'm being totally honest. And I think that was always kind of, um, you know what, I mean, it's a little bit of an embarrassment thing. It's kind of like, it's, it's a self-conscious piece. But I think for me, like in the moment, it's like, I mean, this was a person who was like a, a partner at our firm, right? So, I mean, what, what, what are you going to say? Uh, so you just kind of like, oh, like you almost kind of like smirk it off. But, you know, in the back of my mind, I'm like, had a few choice words, I'm sure. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I can imagine. Yeah. Okay. And so let's go back to or go into your kind of early professional early professional days. So why do you decide to go into investment banking in the first place? Yeah, honestly, I mean, I had just looked up to a number of folks who I played football with and their older teammates and kind of figured out like, okay, this is someone who has a similar, you know, class background that I do. He studied economics. I studied economics. Like this seems kind of like a prevailing track. I literally knew nothing about finance. I mean, my my mom is a teacher and my dad worked at Delta for almost 30 years. So, um, you know, this element of business was kind of like a very novel concept that didn't really, what wasn't really dinner table talk for us. Mm. Um, so it was more so of just kind of like putting myself in other people's shoes to say, well, if the common thread amongst this group of people that I really respect and admire is an investment banking track, like maybe I should be on a similar path. And I felt that, you know, obviously I got to know more about the job and I did an internship, but I felt that, you know, at age 22, 23, 24, and I actually still believe it, that 
there are a few jobs that will kind of prepare you for careers down the road, like a banking job, right? Because you're just expected to be on for two years, more or less, and you work a yeah. ton. <laughs> and well, you can empathize with that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but there's just even little skills like navigating Excel and like thinking about how to break down a model and break down a company from an analytics standpoint. So, I mean, those are still skill sets that I use daily. So, um, yeah, it was more so of a kind of, you know, what are older friends of mine kind of doing within the workforce and would that be a good fit for me? Right. So you kind of went into it. It sounds like eyes wide open, just kind of ready to embrace whatever, whatever, whatever's there. Yeah. Yeah. For the most part. And then obviously like that happened in 2008. So I was like, wow, this banking thing is like this all the time. This is the worst job ever. So I was a little bit jaded by the, the 2008 banking experience, but uh, <laughs> that was just a crazy time in general. Yeah. And that I was, just going to follow up with that. Like, what was it like to work in that industry during the great, like right in the middle of the great recession? It was nuts. I mean, if you think about kind of an an entry level position, which is what an investment banking analyst is, I mean, they were firing analysts left and right. So, you know, things are pretty grim when they're letting go of very, very junior resources. And, um, you know, I saw a, a number of my classmates in our training class who were unfortunately let go and, just through like very toxic measures, right? Like I remember coming back from lunch one day and one of our training classmates, like desk was completely gone. And they're like, oh, like we have to talk to you in this conference room. I'm like, if, if that's how this is done, like I don't really want to be a part of this necessarily. <laughs> like coming to work every day being like, is today the day that I'm on the chopping block or not? So it was just, it was just like a very tumultuous environment. And I, didn't, I wasn't really learning a ton because nothing was really happening. Um, so that's when I kind of start to look elsewhere and obviously ended up, uh, you know, meeting and, and finding the team at Bonobos. Mm-hmm. <laughs> wow. That's something they like you would see, see in the movies, but kind of, you come back and you're out. <laughs> they packed up your stuff. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was, it was pretty bad. It was pretty bad. I mean, you just had so many people who were so focused on what, the share price was doing that day and no one wanted to work and you know, it was just, it was not a healthy environment. Yeah. What surprised you the most about working in investment banking? Hmm. Um, that's a good question. I mean, I think I had an understanding for the commitment required for the job, but I think what's, air quotes, devastating about banking, and I'm sure you can empathize with this, is anytime you try and make one small plan, like it gets, compl- gets completely blown up, right? So if you have dinner <laughs> plans or friends coming in town or parents coming in town, like you might as well just say, there's no chance this is happening. And I think I wasn't necessarily prepared uh, for that. Yeah. I, you know, my first job out, I, I eventually kind of went back into banking where I had kind of a much better perspective on you basically just have to treat every day like it's Tuesday. Like every day is a work day, right? Which is like a pretty not fun way of going through your, your work week. But like in reality, like that's just kind of how it is because whether if it's Friday night or Sunday afternoon or Saturday afternoon or Wednesday at 3 a.m., like if there are things that need to be done, like you're likely in the office. So I just right. didn't have a really good perspective for how that would actually come to fruition and obviously like you having lived it for a few years, like you kind of understand like, wow, it's like, it's not even worth making plans because you know, you'll, you'll never, you'll never experience them. Yeah. I can definitely remember 
plenty of times where I had to cancel like nights out or dinners with friends sure. on like Friday night. Yeah, for sure. And so you leave your initial stint in investment banking and go to work at Bonobos. Yep. And that was like real early days there, right? Yeah. So that was timeframe wise was December of 2008. So uh, yeah, I had the, I ended up meeting um, Andy Dunn, who's the CEO of Bonobos and Dave Eisenberg, who was the first employee. And we met through a mutual connection and what I thought they were doing was awesome. And it was a super fun environment. And I remember showing up to work the first day. We were on the third floor, fourth floor, third floor of a three-story walk-up, I guess, in, um, in Chelsea, in New York. And it was just, it was just fun. I mean, there were pants everywhere. <laughs> there, were, you know, there was people who were just like in a good mood and upbeat and like tons of natural light and like all these things sound like, Oh, natural light, like cool. But like when you're stuck in a cubicle for seven or eight months of your life, you're like, Oh, that's actually kind of a, a nice, a nice factor of this, or a nice perk, if you will. Yep. Um, yeah. And it was great. I mean, it was, uh, you know, what was a very tough time in the financial world, but it was, was growing like crazy. Um, so it was just fun to be kind of, uh, a part of a team in its early stages where the growth was, was scaling at such a rapid clip. Right. And what was your role there? I think we all kind of wore the everything name tag, right? Where it was, yeah, sure. Depending on what the, what the need was, but I focused a lot on kind of finance and ops work. So worked with, uh, I had a boss when I first started and then kind of shifted to work underneath, um, the VP of finance, but, you know, ran kind of sales reports, inventory reports, um, anything kind of like circling numbers. Um, but then I spent a good few hours a day packing pants and boxes, right? Like we didn't mm. have outsourced fulfillment. So we ran everything out of the, you know, out of the, the studio apartment. So we had literally thousands of pants like in this office. And <laughs> I had one of my buddies who, um, you know, he was kind of on the the ops and marketing side. So he would literally take hockey bags up to the garment district and bring pants back like 20 at a time on the ACE train. And like, he would wheel them, like throw them back in the office and go back up. And I would pack those 20 and box them up. And then we'd literally rinse, repeat that for a number of hours. And at like five fifty four every day, we sprint to FedEx before it closed at six and like drop <laughs> all these boxes. We did That's that awesome. literally every day. So, um, yeah, I mean, looking back on it, it was just, it was super fun. And that was, that was kind of D to C like 0.0, right? Where, you know, a lot of these concepts that are now ubiquitous in the space just didn't exist. Like free shipping, like not a thing. Um, outsource fulfillment, like not really a thing. So uh, it, it's just funny to think about how far brands have become and also how many service providers there are out there to kind of cater to these early growth stage businesses such that you don't need to hire a team of, 10 or 15 people right out of the gates, right? But you can think about where you're going to park your inventory or who's going to manage your Facebook spend or who's going to do this or who's going to do that versus hiring everyone in the house. Mm -hmm. Right. And do you remember how many employees were at Bonobos when you were there? So I was the sixth hire. Wow. Um, We had a few few consultants at the time. Um, But yeah, it was a, you know, very early days, uh, very chaotic um but but super fun at the same time Um, yeah and really kind of cool to see kind of the other angle of 
the consumer world kind of away from the, you know, the, the big time investment banker world where you're looking at the Levi's of the world and some of these very, very well-known global brands to, you know, a six, eight person startup selling men's pants online, right? That in <laughs> itself was a very novel concept at the time. Um, so yeah, it was a, it was a fun transition. Yeah. And so they've obviously gone on to achieve great success since then got acquired by Walmart, I think a few years ago. Um, what are some of the things that you learned about building a great consumer company um, that you've taken with you to Huron? Yeah, great question. You know, I think Andy and team did a great job, first and foremost, of really prioritizing consumers and the consumer experience and customer service. I think for me, that was like a really eye-opening factor where, you know, yes, it's kind of table stakes to be like, we have really strong customer service. But I think what it's kind of funny that the, the customer service team, we were all called like ninjas at the time. So the customer <laughs> service ninjas, uh, just the length at which people would go out of their way to make sure that people were having an incredible experience with the brand. Um, and I think like the Bonobos NPS score today still rates as like one of the highest in B2C. And there's just like this fundamental ethos of like the customer is the North star times like 50. And that's certainly one thing I've tried to bottle from that experience and kind of bring to Huron, which is like, you can build an amazing brand and have great creative and an amazing website. But like, if you don't treat your customers very well, um, you know, you won't be around for that long. So for us, it's like, what can we constantly do to make this one transaction that much more meaningful to a particular customer? And I think in the early days, which I was at a Bonobos and obviously we're kind of in there still in the early innings at, at Huron, you know, you do things that aren't scalable, but you do things that aren't scalable for customers who, um, you know, have, have shown an affinity towards your brand. And I think kind of circling the wagons kind of on those earlier wins and really kind of forming these amazing relationships with engaged customers, like this will be our loyal base that stays with us as we grow and scale over time. So we really have to kind of roll out the red carpet for these folks. And I think we've, We've done a good job at doing that thus far, but I think there's always room to improve. But sure. that, that's probably my biggest takeaway. And, uh, and I think one that's, that's arguably the most meaningful. Yeah. Yeah. And so here's the pivot that I don't really understand. So why do you decide to go back into investment banking after Bonobos? Good question. I mean, I think it was kind of a whirlwind of a few things. One, I kind of honestly just got sick in New York and um, you know, I'm a Midwesterner at heart. So, uh, I was not necessarily, uh, cut out for New York. I think at, at that phase of my life, um, that's one. Secondly, I mean, I looked at, I looked at Andy's background. I looked at Brian's background. I was like, you know, this is type, this is a type of skill set that I think I need to be able to eventually be them one day. Right. Right. Which is me. You get the analytical background of, investment banking or private equity or consulting, uh, maybe go back to business school. And then you say, you know, I have the tools that I need to launch my own business. Now, do you need to go back to business school? Do you need to be a banker or consultant? Like, of course not. But I think for me, again, kind of in looking in common threads, whether it was folks kind of from the Brown football community or folks from Bonobos, et cetera, like that was kind of the common path. So as someone who likes to look for patterns, um, you know, that's when I said like, okay, like maybe this is the track that I should be on such that I can eventually be kind of running my own company one day. Uh, so that was kind of what kickstarted that, that journey. 
Right. So you're, you're thinking real long-term in terms of where you want to be like, I don't know, 10 years out and what are the skills you need to acquire in order to get to that point? Yeah, I think so. I think so. I mean, I, I also thought I kind of, you know, maybe I had left banking too early or maybe just wasn't a great experience, but I felt like I had that opportunity that not a lot of people have. And like, it, it just like didn't work out the first go around. Um, you know, it was obviously trying times in 2008, but I felt like I wanted that analytical skill set that I'd sought after post-college, but just, you know, d- didn't quite get, unfortunately. Um, so I wanted to kind of, you know, a second bite of the apple to kind of, to kind of build that. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. And so after that second stint, you go into a consumer private equity role. Did you enjoy your experience in PE? I did. And I was very fortunate to find a group that I thought was a great, not only personality fit, but also a fit for kind of what I wanted out of a private equity associate role, which was, you know, we weren't just flipping sims and constantly looking at deals. I mean, obviously we were looking at deals frequently, but you know, the, the ask was not to sit in an office and just be on Excel 25, eight, right. The ask was <laughs> go look for cool emerging brands that have a great story that um, might be looking for, you know, some, some institutional capital to supercharge growth. And I think for me, that was, really exciting. And I was able to take kind of the learnings that I had seen at Bonobos to say, I think this brand has a lot of momentum. I think this brand might not be there yet. I think this is too early. I think this may be too late. Um, but, but I got to see a bunch of different business models within a category and in a vertical that I'm extremely passionate about. So I think for me, that was, um, you know, it was an awesome opportunity, uh, had a lot of responsibility, which was great. Um, and yeah, we, we were just, it was very cool from an exposure standpoint, but also kind of a nuts and bolts standpoint. Like we, we were a, you know, known as a private equity firm that does get pretty hands-on, right? So you are frequently engaging with management teams and working through models and thinking through strategic hurdles and all that stuff where, you know, eventually when I got to business school, I realized not everyone kind of shared a similar experience. Right. So in that regards, I felt, I felt very fortunate. Yeah. And how was that? investment experience helped you now as both an operator and a founder? I mean, I think there's, there's certainly elements that, uh, you know, coming from the finance world that you're constantly eyes on, right? It's, you're looking at top line growth, you're looking at margin, you're looking at margin expansion opportunities, you look at cash burn, you're looking at runway, you know, there's so many things that are, are constantly running through my mind around, you know, hey, if we tweak this and tweak that, like, we'll tack on two points to our fully baked margin, right? Or if we ship this this way versus that that way, then our cost of goods goes from X to Y. So, I mean, there's always kind of levers and triggers that are running through my head. Um, But that being said, like, it is important to kind of step away from that role a little bit because not everything is purely X's and O's, right? There is some subjectivity that has to creep into the overall equation. Um, You know, Personally, I wish everything could be distilled down to a number, uh, but that's just not the way this, this world works. Um, you know, there, there are feelings involved. There, there are things that aren't necessarily measurable. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, we, we try to be very thoughtful, intentional, and analytical about a lot of the decisions that we're making. Mm-hmm. Right. And so as someone with experience in both investment banking and private equity, what are some words of wisdom or advice that you would give someone who's interested in working in either one of those fields? 
A really good question. I mean, I think, you know, again, we talked a little bit about from the commitment standpoint of being kind of a, a junior person in the financial field, right? It's, it's a lot. It's yeah. a lot. But um, I mean, I think kind of the, the skill sets that you will acquire is one that is arguably maybe one of the strongest you could have as someone in kind of their early 20s or kind of a junior professional. Um, in terms of like, you know, what is the key to getting a bazillion dollar a year salary at like the biggest private equity firm in the world? Like I, I, I don't really know. Um, you know, I think networking is certainly part of that. I mean, I think there's so many tools that exist nowadays that didn't really exist and that weren't used as regularly uh, when I was kind of in the early stages of my career, whether it be even just thinking like LinkedIn or Twitter, or, you know, I'm, right. I've been amazed about the responsiveness of some people. If you literally just reach out to them on, on Twitter, um, being like, Hey, I saw you wrote this. Like, I really agree. Like, we'd love to sync up the chat sometime. Like, cool. Like how about next time? And then all of a sudden in five minutes, you're speaking <laughs> to someone that has a, you know, a pretty big audience. So, I mean, I think there's a, there's inherently a receptivity amongst folks to kind of help out where they can. I think the onus is on, a lot of a lot of people, junior people who want to be in those roles to make the ask, right? Like no no one is going to randomly DM you and ask you, hey, I have this role open, are you in? Um, but you have to right. be the one that's kind of being persistent about the search effort. Yeah. So just be very, very persistent. I think so. I think yeah. so. And I think people appreciate that. And you know, I think the uh the digital veil these days is, is very, very strong, right? Where it's, you know, people can email and DM and tweet and whatnot. But I think, you know, asking people like out to coffee here, can you buy them lunch? Or like those kind of like one-on-one -on -one IRL engagements are kind of like an afterthought. Now, obviously with COVID, that's kind of thrown a, a bit of a curveball. But um, I think people are super set to be like, hey, can I buy you a coffee for 15 minutes and learn about X firm? Because uh, I'm really interested in, you know, maybe would love to work there one day. I, I would find very few people who would say like, oh, like this is annoying. I, like I can't spare 15 minutes. Like I'm, I'm just hard pressed to believe that. So, I, but I think it is on that, that person who wants to be at one of those firms to ultimately make that ask. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree with that. And so after, after all those years in finance, you go to Stanford and get your MBA. Is that when you get the spark to start here on is during that time? I think so. I mean, I think this, this category in itself has always been kind of festering in the back of my mind. Sure. I, I think twofold. One, obviously my experience growing up as a kid, right? I, I felt that this was the one category where I felt most relatable to the end consumer, right? And we talk about pain points. There's a pain point for everything, right? It's I was booking my airline ticket and like the site crashed. And that's when I knew I wanted to be this like entrepreneur of X. It's like, okay, like I get it. Um, we can talk about pain points. It's like something that's like actually hitting like your self-esteem pretty hard. Like that, that's a pain, like that, that supersedes a pain point arguably. So I felt that that was kind of my way to be super connected to someone who would ultimately buy these products or would potentially buy products like these. Right. So that was kind of always like the personal angle, which is where do you feel like you have a, a really strong card to play? And for me, skincare was certainly one of those categories. I think on the professional side, I saw so many businesses at Winona kind of in the 2012 to 2015 timeframe, they were doing such an excellent job of speaking to the female consumer kind of on the cosmetic side and on the health and beauty side with 
amazing branding and cool founder stories and awesome customer experiences and cool websites. And I, as a guy kind of in my mid twenties, still found myself walking in the CVS to buy Dove and Old Spice. Right. And I was just like, right. man, there's, like, I don't even know where to go to find brand equivalents to what I'm seeing every day on, on, on the female consumer side. I don't really want to go to Bloomingdale's and literally my only other option is CVS or Walgreens. Um, and I think that for me was kind of like a, why does nothing really exist? Or maybe it does, but it's just those brands don't, maybe they don't want me because I, I don't know anything about them. Um, but yeah, that was always kind of, it was kind of like the perfect intersection between interesting and relevant personal experience mixed with kind of a professional experience of like, I've kind of seen similar playbooks of how it's done on the female side. I mean, not saying we can replicate that because some of those brands are absolutely amazing. Um, but is there a spark there, uh, for guys to kind of gravitate towards those brands in a similar way? Right. Got it. And so maybe just for the people listening, provide a, <clears throat> provide a brief overview of, of Huron. Sure. So Huron is a clean men's grooming company. So, um, you know, our fundamental premise is to make a plus personal care for guys everywhere. You know, what does that mean? It means you know, we have customers who are in their teens who live in rural America and we have customers who are in their late seventies who live in major cities. So we have a pretty diverse set of guys. Um, I think what makes us different is, is kind of twofold. One, there is this notion of relatability, right? Where we, we try to make this brand as approachable as possible from a packaging standpoint, from a price point standpoint, from an experience standpoint. Like if you log on to our site and ask our chat about a question, like there's like a 50% likelihood that yours truly is going to be answering that question. Right. So I think that's, that's a cool <laughs> dynamic. Mm -hmm. um, and secondly is on product quality. So my, co-founder, whose name coincidentally is also Matt, um, worked under the Estee Lauder umbrella for 20 plus years developing products for some of the most prestigious and reputable brands in the world. Tom Ford's of the world, Lab Series, et cetera. So, you know, when we first met, what was really exciting was, you know, can we create and channel products that are typically earmarked for the super premium consumer and bring them down in price point to a guy who wants to invest in himself, but like doesn't really know where to start or what to do. Um, and I think that's kind of the, uh, the large swath of our, of our customers kind of coming from that angle. There's also another angle of, of our customers who are skincare pros, but they're like, look, this product's amazing. And it's a third of the cost of what I'm typically buying. So why would I not use this product? So it's a, it's an interesting mesh of kind of consumers, but, uh, that's just a little bit of background on us. We launched almost a year ago. So July 29th will be our one year anniversary. Um, and yeah, we've remained a pretty small team. We, it was just Matt and I for the first eight months, we made our first hire, uh, in the thick of <laughs> thick of COVID in the middle of March. Um, and we've been off to the races ever since. Awesome. So how did you come up with a name here on? Good question. So naming is, I never really had an appreciation for this and I heard it a bunch of times from entrepreneurs. It's by far the worst part of the creative process, right? Because you're like, you're looking for something perfect. You, it has to check out from a handle perspective, from an SEO perspective, from a web, URL perspective, from a trademark. I mean, there's so many boxes you have to check and, you know, I's dotted, T's crossed the whole nine. And honestly, Huron was the second name we looked at. And it was the street that I lived on in Chicago for five years. 
when my skin was arguably at its worst. And it just felt like a cool daily reminder of kind of for whom we're fighting on behalf of, right? It's like, mm-hmm. these are for guys who, who want, who want to feel better about themselves, who maybe want to look a little bit better, who want to present themselves better, but like don't know where to go. And maybe they're stuck still buying the same drugstore staples that they always have been, but they don't want to pay a hundred dollars for some serum that they have no idea what it does for them. Right. So um, again, for us, it's, it's a cool way to kind of channel back to like the actual origins of kind of my story and my issues with kind of this category uh, and kind of a nice daily reminder. Awesome. And so did you get a lot of pushback from either friends or family when you announced that you wanted to start the company? No, very, very lucky in that regards. Um, A lot of support from friends, family, uh, a lot of whom have obviously been customers. Um, Some are investors. So um, no, I've just been very, very fortunate in that regards to have a a really strong support network. Um, Yeah, I'm just very thankful for, for that. That's great because there are definitely stories of entrepreneurs with kind of friends and family just telling them they're telling them they're they're crazy. So <laughs> that's great that you had the. Awesome I certainly support. had a few of those, but I would say on the whole, people are, are are very supportive. Yeah, yeah, that's great. What were the the factors that had to had to come together in order for you to make the decision to actually go live with the company? I think one misconception about kind of entrepreneurship in general is that it's only reserved for very risk seeking individuals. And I'm about as big of a risk mitigator as one could find, right? Like I'm constantly looking for ways to figure out like, how do we minimize the risk here? How can we pull back there? You know, X, Y, Z. And I think for me, I always felt like there was an opportunity there. Obviously I would, I had been on that journey of kind of looking for products that work, couldn't find anything. But I also wanted kind of some social validation or some third party validation that I wasn't just an N of one that was speaking for an entire demographic or group of folks who would like this product, right? So over the course of kind of the tail end of 2017 and early 2018, we launched a survey uh, to about 1,500 guys kind of compile a bunch of data points based on current purchasing behavior, uh, products that guys currently use, price points they're comfortable in paying. Um, It's about 10 to 15 questions. And then we rolled all those learnings into actually a fake brand. So we built a website, really crappy one I might add, built a website on Wix, and then we built upwards of 60 different product pages just to test like what, what do consumers actually want to shop for? And we marketed, through Instagram, through five markets, largely in the Midwest. Um, I kind of wanted kind of quote unquote tier two markets, if you will. Um, and we had, a, we had a tremendous amount of success. So we ran that experiment for probably three weeks in January of 18. Um, and for me, we weren't tracking KPIs, we weren't tracking a bunch of these numbers, uh, which is probably inconsistent with what I just said like five minutes ago. Uh, but for me, I just wanted like that, like that gut feeling if I felt like there's actually something here and that was like absolutely the, the case. So for me, that was super exciting to say like, okay, this is a very inexpensive, low touch way to kind of take the temperature on the market to see if there is indeed appetite for a brand like this. And once right. we found kind of that traction, then that's kind of when we said, okay, let's, let's make a run at this. Right. Once you decided 
or found that there is actually a genuine and significant interest in something like that. You decide yep. that. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. yeah. And so what are the different products that you have and where can people go to, to buy them? So right now we have four SKUs. We have a body wash, a face wash, a face lotion, and an eye stick. And kind of the premise behind that assortment is we wanted to come out with kind of the best basics, right? You know, these are products that most consumers are pretty familiar with. You, you may not be someone who uses face moisturizer every day, but you're probably familiar with what it does and how to apply it. Um, I think but building that kind of groundwork of, kind of trust and showing kind of what we can do with otherwise, you know, commoditized products um, was an important first step. Um, so we have a series of products that will roll out uh, over the course of 2020 and into 21, which we're super excited about. So that's a little bit about product. Yeah. Uh, for us right now, we're all D2C. So usehereon.com is our website um, and we sell 99.6% of our products through the site. Uh, and then we do some separate wholesale stuff, but those are kind of one-off partnerships. Okay. And I'm, I would assume at some point down the road, you'd love to be in a, kind of all those different kind of retail stores. Yeah. I think for us, retail has always been kind of an important piece of the puzzle. Obviously COVID threw a little bit of a wrench in that. Um, but also just understanding you know, who the right partners for us are at this particular stage, right? Like, can we meet those MOQ quantities? Um, you know, do we feel comfortable that this is the right retail partner that the shopper matches well for the Huron customer? I mean, there's, there's a lot of kind of factors that come into play, but yeah, for us, the, uh, the retail piece is, is certainly uh, one that we're excited about. Right. You may have alluded to this earlier, but what are, or what were some of the major pain points that you wanted to address when it came to formulating the kind of actual ingredients and what went into your products? Yeah. So we're pretty, pretty big sticklers for our own products. I mean, our, our kind of positioning is, you know, if we don't absolutely love these products, how can we honestly brag about them to our consumers? Right. right. Um, or at least help them understand why they're so great. If we didn't firmly believe that ourselves. Um, so I think, you know, formulation troubles, not really any troubles or hurdles per se. I just think that, you know, what we decided upon as our formula philosophy, if you will, you know, to be a clean brand, to be vegan, to be free of parabens and sulfates and silicones and phthalates. Um, it's a pretty extensive list, right? So what happens is a lot of those chemicals that I just mentioned are oftentimes used to a get, get formulas kind of put together faster and cheaper. Um, but with potentially chemicals that are harsh to your skin, and your body, right? So we wanted to, and maybe even the environment. So we wanted to avoid a, a lot of those ingredients altogether. So we have a pretty lengthy kind of free of list. So it just kind of puts a little bit of handcuffs on the product development process, just because you're not able to work with the full easel, so to speak. You know, you, you right. can only work with uh, work with so many ingredients. But you know, we're, we're fortunate enough to work with amazing product manufacturers and have amazing partners. And, you know, they were super eager to, to partner with us in the early stage and kind of embrace the challenge of creating, again, these A plus products, um, but still adhering to our formula philosophy. Right. Can women use your products too? Absolutely. So, uh, you know, a not too insignificant 
number of our customers are actually female, uh, which, is, which is awesome. And I think the reason there is twofold. One, uh, oftentimes she is buying for the house in this category. Um, so she may be buying for the guy in her life, whether it's right. brother, boyfriend, uncle, dad, whomever. Um, so that's kind of one entry point for, for consumers into the brand. But secondly, we've received a ton of feedback, which is really exciting around like a sample email might be, Hey, I saw your body wash in this article. I bought it for my boyfriend. It smells amazing. And now I'm using it myself. So like it's kind of interesting because there are so many brands that are targeting arguably a more educated, educated consumer on the whole, which is kind of the, the female buyer, especially in this category but she's now opting to kind of use our products, which is, which is super cool to see. Um, and, you know, again, that's a, that's kind of a consistent theme that we've seen over the past few months, which, which is the intent was maybe to buy for someone in her life, but now she has actually adopted using the products herself. So that's, that's kind of a cool transition. Yeah, that is cool. And so I guess at a more macro level, how do you see the whole, like, whole men's care industry landscape changing and where does Huron kind of fit into that story? I think skincare by and large and men's grooming um, is kind of the last domino to fall for a lot of guys in terms of them being intentional about their purchasing behavior, right? So this category is interesting because you may be on autopilot to walk into a a drugstore and buy the same bottle of body wash that you've purchased for the past six years. Maybe it's just a different color or a different scent. Um, and it right. costs you eight bucks and you know, you're going to come back next month to buy another one. Right. But, but that is such like a thoughtless purchase. It's not that there isn't any intent, but it, you're just on autopilot, right? You've made so many other decisions in the day. You're not willing to read the back of labels to mix it up. And people don't, and I think guys in particular, don't consider themselves premium consumers or premium buyers, even though their buying behavior might suggest otherwise, right? So for instance, if you used to only buy Old Navy khakis and now you buy J. Crew khakis or you buy Bonobos khakis, like guess what? You're kind of a premium consumer. Or if you used to buy lunch at your company hot bar every day and you're like, uh, actually I'm going to like focus on what I'm eating for the next few weeks. Like I'm going to go get salads every day and the salad costs eight or nine bucks. Like you're a premium consumer. Right. So I think it's just getting guys to understand like this is an investment in themselves, right? It's, it, it's better for your skin. It's better for your self-confidence, like self-esteem. Like there are a lot of benefits here. And I think getting product into guys' hands is what's been like the best part for us because then there's the kind of the wow factor is almost inherent in the use of the product. Um, so for us and for companies at our stage and, and brands like ours, I think this is a really exciting time because the category is absolutely gigantic and it's not right. really a one winner take all type field. Right. Um, I think there's a lot of room for a lot of these uh, younger upstarts to really kind of take a bite out of, the pie, which has been otherwise kind of owned by a lot of these incumbents for decades. So I think it's a super exciting time. I think a lot of guys are kind of turning the corner in the space and saying like, yeah, it makes sense. That like I'm very healthy in every other category of my life, but then my body washes neon blue, like that feels a little off. Um, right. 
you know, I think that's, again, kind of like one of the, the last dominoes to fall for, uh, for a lot of consumers in this category. And I think a lot of brands similar to us are in a great position to potentially benefit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so what's your ultimate vision for here on? It's a great question. I mean, I think, you know, for us, our kind of mantra around growth or whatnot is we always wanted to be a brand that could cross the the chasm from being a brand to being a business, right? So it's not about necessarily about how quickly can we raise the next round of funding or how quickly can we get to a hundred million dollar valuation or $500 million valuation, but how can we resonate with the most consumers humanly possible? And how can we do that in the most cost efficient manner? Um, I think we'll be a really lean team as we grow and scale. Um, and I think we'll be one that will always put the consumer kind of first, second, and third. So I think it's a really exciting kind of trajectory that we're on. Um, I think we've seen kind of a lot of the investor community maybe pull back a little bit from some of those brands who've been trying to raise just eons worth of capital and maybe focus a little bit more on brands that might have a little bit better economics and might be thinking about things a little bit different. So I think the timing is, uh, is, is certainly right for us. Right. Right. Okay. So really still being very much consumer focused, but being a genuine kind of scaled business instead of kind of one of those, I don't know, unicorn startups that have just kind of raised a bunch of money without kind of really refining their product, if that makes sense. Yeah, to some extent. I mean, honestly, this is like a a really interesting tie-in back to like literally the first thing you talked about is like, you know, when you look back at some of those messaging points, um, in sports growing up, like if you think about talking about the little things, like we, we are focused on the little things. And, and then in terms of outcomes and exits, like that's the big thing that I have no control over. Right. But if we can continue to acquire customers efficiently, resonate with them such that they're coming back, engage with them constantly and continually via social, via email, via chat, et cetera. Um, then I think we'll be well on our way to building a very loyal base that will continue to support us over time. And then hopefully the big things will, will take care of themselves. Right. Awesome. So getting into these last few questions here, what does your daily routine look like? Uh, it's a little up in the air now. I'm, I'm a very early riser. So most people might think I'm a psychopath, but I'm usually up between like 4.30 and 5. Um, okay. I'll do a little bit of work in the morning. And then always typically work out from six to seven. Uh, my fiance and I, we have breakfast and then we kind of go to work and we work until we can't work anymore. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of like Groundhog's Day all over again, but, um, but it's fun. I mean, yeah. for anyone like thinking about starting a company, like this is the most, it's the most of a lot of emotions, but invigorating and kind of uh, exciting is certainly two that come to mind first. Right. Okay. What's your number one skin care tip? Good question. I mean, I, honestly, I think consistency is key, right? Like, I think when, when my skin starts to flare up a bit, it's usually because like, I haven't done something correctly or consistent in the past few days, whether it's, I ate like crap, or maybe I drank too much, or I fell asleep on the couch and didn't wash my face, right? I mean, there, there's so many little factors there, but I think honestly, like getting guys to get into a routine um, you know, that's one of our biggest missions. And once guys can get into a routine, now you'll start to feel that like, wow, I didn't wash my face last night. Like that's like almost as gross as not brushing your teeth. Right. And once we can kind of get to like something like that, then we're starting to 
to resonate well with our audience. Yeah. And then lastly here, bringing this back to the name of the podcast, the Driving Force podcast, what do you think has been your driving force throughout your life? Ooh, great question. I think for me personally, it's my parents. Um, you know, I was, you know, very fortunate growing up, had two amazingly loving parents um, who was always down, who, they were always down for supporting me and traveling wherever, you know, I, I, we took a family vacation when I was 14 to Buffalo so I could run in a track meet for like literally 55 seconds. Um, <laughs> so just thinking about that and kind of, you know, thinking about everything that they sacrificed um, so that I could have the opportunity to go to an Ivy League school, um, you know, and succeed in high school and all these things. Uh, the common thread there is, is, is really kind of a, a very stable and supportive home life, which I'm very, very grateful for. Awesome. That's a good place to end it. Matt, thanks for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thanks. This was great. Thanks, Chase. Appreciate it. Where can people go if they want to learn more about Huron, like website, social media, et cetera? Sure. We're pretty easy. So use Huron, U-S-E-H-U-R-O-N.com is our website. We're at use Huron on every social media platform imaginable. Um, and if anyone has any questions, feel free to email me. I'm just mad at use Awesome. And you can also visit my website, chaserosa.com and follow me on Instagram at chaserosa4 for updates on new episodes. Thanks everyone who's listening and see you next time.